Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Linda Schaefer manages Checkers operations and is committed to building the highest level of quality service for their customers and applicants. She's successfully scaled operating teams in fast growth, data intensive companies in media and telecom at Yellow Pages, Sense Network, Nielsen, and Accenture. Linda leads operations and GNA and people at the SaaS startup who has modernized the background check. She's an extensive line of experience commercializing and growing data products developing scalable operations and managing teams in both small and large operations. Linda is focused on growth companies scaling from startup to growth and data and analytics businesses. So Linda, welcome to the Second Fan Podcast. Thanks. Thank you, Cameron. Yeah, looking forward to learning from you today. So why don't you give us a little bit of um, kind of your background? I always call it like a little bit of a helicopter tour. Maybe walk us through where you gained some of your experience and kind of walk us through a little bit of your bio so we get a better understanding of you and your skill set. Yeah, sure. Um, I started out um, early in my career, I would say, uh, exploring where I should go. And I, I landed in the energy industry in my, in my very early career. And I think one of the things I really appreciated about um, my path from my early days at the utility to check was that um, I've had the opportunity to work in a very large number of industries in a variety of personal capacities. So uh, after I started off, I was working at a utility planning energy efficiency programs for hospitals and schools uh, in New York State. And I came to the early conclusion that working inside a public utility was um, not quite the pace I was looking for (laughs) for my career. And I decided to um, venture, um, which for a a girl from the uh, New England, from the East Coast, was um, a big uh, change of pace. Mm -hmm. And um, I've pretty much never looked back since that that first move out here. It was a little bit of a lark to move out to California um, at the time, but, um, you know, it's been important in my my trajectory in Silicon Valley here as well. Um, after those early days um, in the energy industry, I, um, I went back to business school and I ended up working at Accenture, which was a great place for me to develop, I'd say, like broad-based uh, business skills and get exposure to many different kinds of industries. I was working in the strategic consulting group there. Um, and I did that uh, for about two years until the travel wore me down, um, as it does for many folks. And I landed at a a startup in uh, San Francisco um, called Telefia, which was a market research company focusing on the wireless industry that was later uh, bought by Nielsen um, to build out their telecom practice. And I think um, it was a very important role for me and for my development. Uh, And really, when I look at you know, my roles that I've had since then, I've been trying to kind of replicate that experience that I had at Telfia. It was a, um, almost like a textbook startup experience. Um, We were uh, introducing a new product in a new industry. I started on the product team, 
um, and actually spent about uh, seven years in a product management capacity, um, which I think really helped me understand um, the business. And it was a little bit of a, um, a leap of faith that I switched from leading product teams over to leading operations teams. Uh, my boss called me on the phone. I was actually on maternity leave at the time and said, hey, we have this, this opportunity we think would be exciting for you. You know, what do you think about running um, our operation? And uh, operations at a data business uh, is uh, often um, a little bit messy because um, all data businesses have a little bit of a secret where um, there's always some kind of manual work happening in the back office as even as much technology and automation you can bear there's there's always a human element that um, that needs some um, process and rigor and so that was really my first um, my first role kind of applying what I had learned about um, business to um, a intensive operational role and I've really leaned that way ever since then through um, the rest of my career at Nielsen there, um, later at Sense Networks, and, and now here at Checker. So that's interesting. I've got a couple of questions I want to do some quick follow-up on, but um, well, actually, I'll go into those right now. So when you when you did the jump from product to operations, what do you think the big, you, you said they were very different. What were the big differences? What did you have to learn or unlearn? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing I had to um, learn was how to build a repeatable task at scale. And working as a product manager, you're, the work is much more project-based, I would say. Like you're, you're dealing in general with um, very like higher level business concepts. You're working with um, teams that are very high, highly skilled. And working in an operations role, the job is really has been more of like, how do you take a, um, a problem that you're trying to solve and break it down in a way so that it can be executed by, um, by a team, often a large team, over and over again with high levels of consistency and accuracy um, and build those processes in a way that um, don't rely necessarily on the, um, let's just say like the intellectual horsepower of the individual. It's more right. about building the right system. So that was a different challenge because previously I would say uh, my problem solving relied on, you know, the, the capacity and quality of, of the, uh, you know, the product managers that I hired and um, their ability to make good business decisions, uh, and it was less systematic. It needed. It wasn't. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was probably the biggest shift. Um, and then there were all sorts of other things that I had to problems that I had to deal with that I never had encountered in a product role. Um, for example, uh, one of the products that I led the operation on was a network testing product, which had vans that we would uh, drive all across the US to benchmark the relative quality of different wireless networks. So comparing say like Verizon to T-Mobile and 
how how clear were the phone calls and did they drop your call and that business was very operationally intense like we had vans that were driving all across the country they would hit snowstorms the drivers would get detained um, there was just a different set of uh, challenges that uh, I faced on a day-to-day -day basis um, that really uh, sometimes just surprised me, like the things that, that would happen on the job. Yeah, it, you're kind of dealing with a lot, a lot of stuff that's really out of the box and, and a little more problem solving, a little bit more, um, not winging it, but are you having to be more reactive in some of the areas of operations than you were on the product side? Um, yeah, probably in part, I mean, especially early on in the mm -hmm. role because it was right. new to me and then over time figuring out, uh, how I could bring my planning skills to the team to help the team be more proactive and anticipate issues. Um, like, uh, you know, we know it's December in Minneapolis, so we know we're going to have delays. How do we plan that into our, our program? Right. So you're dealing with um, a sounds little obvious. Strategy. Sounds no. obvious when you when you say it out loud now, but um, but it definitely you know took some learnings to get there. It's it's astounding to me though how many companies don't actually take time to be strategic and think strategically, and that is like just thinking of seasonality in a certain market. It's amazing that some companies don't do that. They they kind of operate under just general flatline assumptions and they don't think through those things. So if, yeah, you, yeah. if you're to fast forward your growth engine, you're, you're over at Checker, um, you're running operations there, chief people and operations officer. So tell us a little bit about what Checker does and then what your role entitles today. Yeah, so, um, so Checker, um, we, um, we are a background check company. We do um, pre-employment background checks as well as um, post-hire um, monitoring and risk mitigation for companies. Um, we have really been a big disruptor in this industry. Um, the company is coming up on six years old. And we were started uh, early on with recognition that the background check industry as a whole was extremely um, antiquated. Uh, the legacy companies that were um, predominant at the time had a lot of relied a lot on manual processes they weren't tech companies they were not tech forward um, many of them at the time did not even have like apis that um, more modern uh, companies could integrate with and we sought to really apply um, automation and artificial intelligence to the entire process so that we could deliver not just you know faster and more accurate background checks, but also um, to really help reduce hiring bias um, in the hiring process. Okay, and who who are your target clients? So uh, Checker um, grew up in the gig economy. Um, many of our customers mm. today are um, customers like Uber and Lyft, and um, to be honest, probably about ninety five percent of the gig economy are Checker. Uh, check our customers. Um, but we also um, serve um, more traditional um, enterprise companies as well. Um, it just so happens that almost all of the 10 million jobs that were created, um, say since um, 2005, are um, temporary um, gig economy jobs. So that's where the growth in the economy has been, and that's where our business has been um, historically focused. Interesting. Okay. 
and your role there at Chapter Now, Chief People Officer, Chief Operations Officer, walk us through the, the business areas that you run and, and what doesn't report to you. Yeah, so um, to, today at Checker, I run um, the the people team, so our, our talent and people operations team, um, our legal team, um, as well as um, what we consider to be um, internal operations, which is any part of the uh, of our internal process that requires human intervention. Uh, you know, I mentioned at Checker that we've done a lot of automation. So mm -hmm. these teams, um, relatively speaking, are not big. They're actually, um, they're uh, all here in, in San Francisco and Denver. Um, but those teams are doing things like uh, quality control um, on uh, reports that we think need extra diligence, um, either because of uh, severe crimes or because we know there's some known um, edge cases that we know our system um, wasn't designed for. Um, they also handle any kind of um, candidate uh, question or uh, dispute that might come up after the background check has been delivered. So um, generally speaking, candidate support teams, um, quality teams, and research teams that are, are very um, deeply versed in the nature of our business. And, then, and you report to the CEO. Who else reports into the CEO? Yeah, so a checker. So I report to the CEO. We have a, a chief business officer who handles um, the revenue side of the house. So our sales, marketing, and customer success groups. Um, we have a chief financial officer who uh, handles uh, finance and strategy of the company. And then we have a chief product officer who is responsible for product engineering and our um, trust and security teams. Cool. And can you give us a, a, like a, an example of scope? Can you talk to us about how many employees you've got full-time, part-time, where people are operating? Yeah, so, sure. We, ha we have about um, 600 employees in total across um, all of our businesses. Um, and, you know, in, my, in terms of my scope, um, I have about 135 of those folks. Okay. And, and what, what was it about the company that you liked when you joined? And what size was it when you got involved? Yeah, so I joined Checker um, coming up on four years ago and the company was uh, about 60 people and had just closed our series B funding and we were growing like gangbusters and um, really needed the company really needed help in uh, scaling operations and mm. bringing I would say like consistency and rigor and just keeping up with the pace of our business growth and I was attracted to Checker because, um, you know, one, it was a very good match for my, my prior experience, um, both in operations and in working with uh, products that were uh, data-based, like a market research product. The product mm -hmm. is the data you're delivering. So it was a good fit from the industry. And I also, I personally loved that it was this kind of like unsexy corner of the technology world that had not been disrupted. And having come from advertising or, or working more, you know, with kind of consumer, like consumer advertising, like this was, um, I found this to be really um, interesting. It makes sense. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense to dovetail into your product side and the engineering side and then also the, the um, operations. So you've seen a ton of growth from 60 to 600 people in four years not a lot of people would go through um, 
would that be three doubles, four doubles, 60 to 120 to 240, almost almost three consecutive years or three or four years of, of 70% growth. What did you learn through all of that? What's changed? Almost everything has changed. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I mean, I really feel like one of the things that has, has kept me excited and engaged at Checker is that it feels like I've worked at a different company almost every six every months. Year. Yeah. Because of those changes were so, so um, dramatic. Um, early on, when I first joined Checker, my personal role was, um, was very hands-on in the operation and uh, very close to the details of how are we setting up Zendesk and exactly what metrics are we using to track our operation. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And uh, over time, my role has has changed, I would say, to be um, more strategically thinking about, um, you know, what do we need to do to maintain culture of the company as we've grown so much? How do we hold on to our core values? How are we making sure the communication in the company is staying um, clear and robust as we've ha hired so many people? Um, but I would say the one thing that has been in common across that whole period is the one thing I have consistently done a lot of is uh, interview. I've done tons of interviews, um, like probably, I don't even know, <laughs> six, six or 700 interviews. Like, um, wow. because I would say hiring has been one of the most important ways that, um, that I have an impact on the company. It was who, okay. I, who I bring in to lead teams. I'm going to go back and ask you about some of the growth stuff in a second, but I want to ask about the interviews just because I've been talking about it all day with a couple of my clients. What do you think are the biggest um, or the best areas that people can go to gain some skills in interviewing? Just even to get them, if we were to say like to a bronze, silver or gold skill level, you know, just to get some base yeah. good, good competency, where would you start? Where would you point them? Yeah. I mean, I would say practice is Practicing out loud, I think, is one of the most important um, communication skills that people can can do on their own or and with I'm a sorry, friend. I'm talking. I'm talking the interviewer. Oh, the interviewer to get skills. Yeah, that is yeah. a good question. Um, like where do, most people have never been yeah. trained. They have no idea how to do a job interview. Yeah, that is a very good question. So. One of the things that's been unique about Checker is that we have had a very structured interview process from the very early days of the company. Mm -hmm. And I think that has helped us um, onboard managers and new interviewers who had never thought about uh, how to ask good um, like situational questions for people, um, how to structure the interview in a way that makes sure that you get out of it what you're trying to really evaluate, whether it's core values or um, the capabilities of the job. But um, I don't know. I'd have to. I have to think about that one. Um, but, but it sounds like you you had the, the company had a process and a, a system in place, and you just made sure people followed that. It sounds like yes. That. So we had a, a, a process and a system and. Um, as much as we have tried to eliminate bias in hiring for our customers through our products, we've tried to do that ourselves with our own hiring processes. So both in terms of um, the structure of our, um, the design of the interview panel, who's interviewing, making sure that we ask a consistent set of um, questions to the panel and that we're 
we're truly um, assessing the skills that we need for the job, um, but also in terms of diversity. So um, mm-hmm. at Checker, we have a requirement for our teams to interview uh, at least two diverse candidates um, before wow. they make an offer. Wow, interesting. So very uh, proactive. Yeah. So I think that, um, yeah, I guess this isn't helpful for folks like to build this from scratch, but I think um, defining structure and trying to encourage consistency in interview process um, is, is really important. It's no, hard. It's a huge, that's a huge point that most companies don't have that either. The um, one thing that I just found interesting on the interviewing for diversity, I spent a, a full day inside of a maximum uh, state penitentiary, level four state penitentiary coaching prisoners. And I was astounded at some of the bias that we have where prisoners will never get a job, right? When they get out yeah. of prison, nobody's ever going to hire them. Do yeah. you guys being in a background search kind of company have anything that you proactively do to try to help um, prisoners get jobs when background checks are going to be biased against them? Yeah. So I would say um, we do a lot. Um, we, you know, our, our company mission um, is to build a fair future. And we very much understand the, uh, the challenge that folks who have a criminal record face in employment situations. Um, one thing I didn't know a lot about before I joined Checker was our criminal justice system. And I've learned mm-hmm. an incredible amount. Um, one in three Americans have a criminal record um, that can prevent them from employment. And that's employment is the single biz- biggest influence on reducing um, reoffense. So yeah. employment is a really important piece of it. We have built into our product tools that help hiring managers to reduce their bias in hiring um, by uh, not even looking at records in their adjudication process that might bias them. So for example- It allows you to take some of those points out of the bias then. Exactly. So so like um, one common example of this is like marijuana in California um, that is um, now um, legalized. Um, So if a hiring manager does not want to see those records at all, even though they're technically reportable on the background check, we have software tools that make it um, easy to do that. Um, so we've really, it's really foundational to, to um, both you know, how we think about building products, um, but it's also foundational to how we do our own hiring. So we ourselves do fair chance hiring here at Checker. We set specific hiring goals for what percentage of our company we want to be um, fair chance. Um, we target more than 5% um, of the company. And um, it's our, our goal as a whole company to, um, to, be, to be leaders in fair chance hiring um, uh, in, the, in the U.S. So we're very active in the fair chance. That's super uh, cool. I love community. that. I really love that. Um, and sorry, that was, a, that was a loaded question that I didn't, um, I didn't intend to ask it in a confrontational way. And I'm glad you guys have no, some really not at all. proactive yeah. things. It's just something I've been thinking a lot about recently. Yeah. So curious about something. I've, I was talking with um, the founder of Infusionsoft about this. He and I both had a, a metric in place related to growth um, that, that a, a senior leader can only ever go through two consecutive doubles in the size of a company before their role is at risk. Mm-hmm. How how do you how did you guys get through that, and what do you think it was that you did to go through 
you know, three doubles now in yeah. terms of, of employee size. And then, yeah. you know, Ben Horowitz in his book, Hard Thing About Hard Things, said that a leader can only go through one triple. So how do you get through that? How did you, how have you continued to scale at Checker so that your um, skill sets continue to grow and you've adapted? Yeah. Yeah. Uh... You know, it hasn't always been easy, I would say, like to that point, you know, we've had a fair number of leadership changes over my mm -hmm. time here. In fact, um, uh, I'm one of the longest tenured executives, um, I think for the very reason that you're saying that, um, that people often have a sweet spot in the doubling. And I think for me personally, um, what has helped is that I've always been very willing to take on areas, uh, new areas of experience that I did not have um, have maybe a proven track record in. Um, for example, most recently, the people team, that was a new ad for me. I had not previously um, led that part of a company. So I think my own willingness to take, um, to take risk, to mm -hmm. not just do what I had already done and what I already knew um, has been important. Um, and I think the other thing um, is just, just speaking really honestly, as I think, um, uh, building a strong relationship with our CEO. Um, mm. And I think he, he trusts me and um, is willing to also um, take some risk with, with what he's willing to give me. That's a, that's a huge point. I'm going to go there in a second because it's, it's really critical for any of the second commands and COOs that are listening. Um, I want to just go back on to what you talked about with your role as taking on the, as being the head of people as one of your core roles seems to be um, a movement over the last number of years. And we were the same when I built 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Uh, we hired a woman who had been the head of people at Business Objects and Crystal Decisions. She came in to be our Kamar head of people. And it was a very cognizant term that we used instead of calling her the head of HR. Um, what do you distinguish as the difference between the head of people and the head of HR? I'm curious as to what your take is on it. Yeah, I mean, I think when, when you know people use the terminology, um, HR, I think it's, um, it has just more like functional connotations versus mm -hmm. thinking about the entire, you know, life cycle and experience of um, employees and people at the company. So I, I see it as just a more holistic term that encompasses, you know, not just the, the technical side of making sure that we're complying with HR, you know, laws and practice, but um, more broadly, thinking about um, the culture that we built here at the company and, and, you know, in many ways, like the brand that we have in the market. Interesting. Yeah. I think, I think what you discussed was the considering the impact on the whole life cycle of the employee versus just policies and procedures. And, yeah. and you know, yeah, that was the way we looked at it as well was the um, someone to sit and think about the impact of everything we did on the, on the people. And it was a big wow when somebody would, would okay, well, how are we going to explain that to the people? And we're like, don't know. We hadn't thought about it. Or what's this going to mean to their day-to-day? -day? I was like, yeah. didn't think about that either. It's a really powerful role when the head of people sits at the leadership team table versus being, you know, relegated to the corner um, like yeah. it used to be. Yeah. yeah. So um, the other thing I wanted to ask about was, was dealing with leadership change when you have some transition in your hiring, as you guys have had to do. For sure, in your growth, when you go from 60 to 600 people, you've had to bring in some outside yeah. senior leaders into the company. Yeah. How, do you bring, how do you bring in those senior leaders successfully? What do you think works to do that successfully versus unsuccessfully? Yeah. 
I think um, one of the most important things that we've done as a leadership team is continuously invest in building a strong leadership team. And we've done that very intentionally over the time that I'm here um, through a number of, I would say, more formal practices. Um, So one is that we we have a... um, we've had a a strict kind of operating cadence of when our most senior team meets and and how we meet. Um, Historically, we've done daily stand-ups with the most senior leadership team where it's just 15 minutes a day and we're connecting and talking about the business um, as well as um, structured weekly tactical meetings and strategic meetings so that we have um, an operational rhythm to how we're working together. Um, but also every quarter we go offsite as a leadership team um, for two days and we spend time really um, talking about the health of our team and giving each other feedback about unproductive behaviors that we're seeing or mm-hmm. feedback mm-hmm. about our teams. And we really um, invest the time to get to know each other and build trust on the team, um, which we have firmly believe that. Um, if you can have that foundation of trust at the most senior team in the company, that that is um, an important foundation to um, performance and results across the whole company. But if you have a dysfunctional leadership team, like, you know, it's very hard to build a successful business. Yeah. It goes back to that Pat Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team, right? The absence of trust and the fear of conflict. Yeah. That's smart. Yes. And we've, we've worked very closely with the table group. So we've, we've totally, we drank a Kool-Aid on that. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's great Kool-Aid. The, um, another question, just when you're bringing in a senior leader into the organization, what kind of ripple effects do you see that sometimes people don't notice? Some of the unintended ripple effects of bringing in a great senior leader. What do you caution us to look at when we're doing that? Does that make sense? What I'm asking? Yeah, I mean, I think every time you bring in a, a, a senior leader or any leader, it has, it has ripple effects, not just on the team they're leading, but um, on all, the, comp- all, the, all of the, the teams around it. And also, um, you know, honestly, like on our CEO and how he does his job. And I think especially being in a fast-paced startup, um, uh, all of us have played sort of, um, you know, pinch hitter on many different roles in the organization. And as you bring in um, sort of the right leader for the right time, that requires um, flexibility among the rest of the leadership to um, adapt and adjust to give those leaders kind of the space and runway they need to do their jobs. So I think that that's a, um, I see that most recently. So we have new, a new CFO and new chief product officer, you know, here at Checker in um, the last few months. And um, that changes, um, that changes our team. And, and yeah. changes, honestly, like my role and our CEO's role and, and how we're all operating. Um, so talk, talk about the relationship with the CEO, because you mentioned that that was something that you've worked on to, um, to build that relationship. And that's been key for some of your longevity and also growth um, with Checker. Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the things, um, one of the things I love about our CEO, Daniel, is that he is incredibly open to feedback and very self-reflective and that has 
that has been an important, I would say, ingredient in, in our building, us building a successful relationship because um, I know that if I give him feedback that he's going to listen and take it seriously. And as a first-time CEO, um, understandably, there's lots of areas that, um, that are going to be new for him uh, mm-hmm. where it's, it's not just helpful, but it's important for him to get um, the feedback from someone who has experience in, in different areas. So I think one of the key things in me building a strong relationship with Daniel was in um, me just being um, honest with him about um, challenges I saw in the organization or the company or, or the business and um, bringing those things to him, you know, even when it was hard. Can you, can you give us a specific example? Because I think you're, you're touching on an area that a lot of senior leaders are very uncomfortable with, and it's that fear of conflict and yeah. radical honesty. And, you know, we can, all, we can all read about it and watch videos on it, but at times yeah. it's hard for people to practice. Walk us through a, a specific example, like this happened sure. and this is what I had to tell them and this is how it went. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few examples I'm trying to... Where, where to go um, if I should just pick something from yesterday or, um, uh, well, sure, I guess I'll pick something from yesterday. Why not? Sure. Um, so, um, and I think this is a very, this is very common for, you know, startup CEOs care deeply about the business. Our CEO is um, our, you know, was our first product leader, very involved in many, many parts of the business. Um, and then as his leadership team has, grown and got and he's brought in a more experienced leadership team it's been important for um for daniel to step out of some of those details so that his team can you know lead their areas um and so we've gone through a um a process more recently where we've been trying to be very diligent about reviewing hiring requests from uh from our teams um to make sure that we're not um, spending too much money. Um, pretty simple. And historically, we have had that Daniel has been involved in um, many of those very low level hiring decisions, not necessarily who is hired, but like, should we should we fill this particular position? And at some point, that's not that's not really scalable for right, a six right. person organization. And um, we had a discussion yesterday with him where we we asked him to step step back from our our backfill process and back the fuck let, off, Daniel. let us let us make the decision. And um, you know he he heard the feedback, um, and we're gonna we're gonna keep working on it. Um, I think what's hard what's hard about that for Daniel and I'm sure for many CEOs is that um, what do I do now? He cares deeply about the business too. He doesn't he he wants mm. success for the business. So he doesn't do it out of, um, I don't think he does it because he's, he thinks he doesn't have anything else to do. I think he does it because he, he really cares about the business. Um, and we have to help him uh, identify those times when the best thing he can do for the business is to um, step back and let um, other leaders kind of take a shot at it. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember having that same discussion with Brian when we were building One Tender Got Junk, and and you identified the key point that he was um, struggling with, which was he really does care very, very deeply um, about the 
operation and about the people and the franchisees and the promises we've made. And he felt like he was stepping away from that. What I had to let him know was like, look, look, I have every single best, you know, um, best interest of his at heart as well. And that if anything goes sideways, they can kind of go around me to get to him. But but to scale, we yeah. need to allow, yeah, you need to allow him. It's a great discussion you have with them. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. What about growing your people? What do you think you focus on in terms of the day-to-day and growing your people, growing your team? Yeah, I mean, what I, I focus on my team is trying to help them articulate for themselves, like what are the things that they're good at, what are they working on, and what can I do to help them uh, either like get access to like the opportunities that they need to uh, develop their own skills, you know, whether that is, um, you know, someone who's never managed people before, like how to, how to help find opportunities for them to develop management skills. Like that's a very, a common interest among more junior sure. employees or, um, among more senior employees, you know, it could be like, how do I, how do I help them, um, understand how to get exposure to more senior levels of the organization, um, and, more broadly like influence in the org and so it's kind of a gap analysis and then do you point them in the direction of self-work or is there ongoing coaching and mentoring do you guys use outside resources do you yeah i would say it's a yeah combination we've um we i mean i i feel like um ongoing ongoing coaching is sort of my personal style with my team but we have also um we have also worked with um, outside coaching, um, like a, a company called Better Manager, for um, some of our first-time managers to get access to, say, professional coaching sessions. Um, we've just started investing um, a bit in internal coaching in our uh, on our people team, where we have someone who's starting to work with, again, like some of our more junior managers and helping them uh, get through some of the things that are hard for new managers, um, like giving hard feedback as an example. Um, and then we also, I would say at the executive level, um, we've also been very supportive of executive coaching. Um, you know, I've used executive coaches. Um, our CEO has uh, many folks on our senior leadership team. Um, because it's very much a, I think a practice that everybody can benefit from. Well, it's interesting that I also get to the stage that, um, you know, I think that all of us, every day we wake up, this is often the biggest thing we've ever built. <laughs> like we're, yes. or, or it's yes. the fastest growing, or it's the newest change, or it's the newest tech, or it's the, it's it's always stretching our, for the for most of us, right? Or most yeah. of the great, great leaders anyway. And I think it goes back to, um, I think it was Ray Kroc who built McDonald's that said, when you're green, you're growing. And when you're ripe, you're rotting. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so it's all, and yeah. then you look at the best athletes in the world, right? If you pick any sport, the best athletes in the world have coaches, all yes. kinds of different coaches that growing ourselves is no longer a negative that I think the school system almost taught us that getting a tutor was because you sucked at something. Yeah. Now it's like, now it's about getting a, a coach for what you're great at. Do you work at building any of those unique ability teams at all where you try to get stuff off people's plates and, and have them only working in their unique ability zones at all versus coaching them on stuff they're bad at? Any thoughts around that? Um, I mean, I I would say um, not with any formal practice, but I really I'm 
I'm a firm believer that um, people generally um, get, uh, say, like advance or however you want to describe like careers by focusing on augmenting what they're good at, um, not just working on what you feel like your weaknesses are, sort of like working on the muscles that are strong can, and really developing a, um, a true exceptional ability um, versus just sort of trying to be peanut butter across everything. Mm, got it. Yeah, for sure. All right. How about yourself? You're starting to look forward into the future for you. What do you think it is that you're working on? Yeah. So some things I've personally been working on, um, public speaking, uh, is something that I've been, um, working on myself, um, as, uh, you know, an example of that, we have a big, we do a big company offsite um, every year where we bring everyone from the whole company together. And um, I was basically the, I guess, ringleader uh, this <laughs> year. So that was, um, that's been a new, a new skill for me to practice communication uh, in larger environments and learning how to have impact with those communications in those kinds of venues. I love it. Um, that's been um, a really interesting uh, area of development for me. That's cool. I was just at an event um, about a week ago called The Gathering, The Cult Gathering, and it was um, a number of chief marketing officers from some amazing brands that were all speaking, about 1,300 people in the audience listening to all these CMOs. It was a really cool, uh-huh. um, yeah, really cool group. It was interesting. Okay, final question. Um, if you were to go back to your you know, 21, 22-year-old self, maybe – Maybe the Linda who was flying from the East Coast over to the Bay Area, as you said, on a lark. Um, what word of advice would you give yourself back then that, you know, now you know to be true, but you wish you'd known when you were moving, moving to the West Coast or starting off in your career? Yeah, I mean, starting off, I would say, like, stop worrying. <laughs> it's going to be fine. I mean, I, I definitely, um, I spent the early part of my career, I think, um, thinking uh, more about like, was this particular decision the right decision? Was this job the right job or this um, company the right company? And I right. think with the benefit of hindsight, um, I recognize that, you know, there are very, very few decisions that are irreversible. And there's, there isn't any job or company that um, I haven't learned something from, even if it was um, maybe not the experience I expected um, coming in the front door. So I think just, um, yeah, being, being flexible and, and not, not sweating it out. It's crazy. I, I, I think the same, that's a great advice, by the way. I, I um, often go back and think of my career and how I got to where I am at the number of like little opportunities that turned into where I am now. And I wonder what would have happened if I'd turned left instead of right or, yeah. uh, and, and not out of regret, yeah. but just yeah. out of more curiosity, curiosity. right? Like, yeah. you know, if, if I picked door number one, would it have, would I, you know, uh, who knows? It's crazy. Linda yeah. Schaefer, the chief people and operations officer for Checker. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the second Command podcast. Great. Thank you so much, Cameron. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. That was great. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, 
visit COOalliance.com.